Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista Getting His Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, July 3rd, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Once again, we have our friend Truthfids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 43 of our discussions. And we should be on proof number 55. In our last presentation in the series, we discussed the blessings and curses, which were prophesied to come upon the children of Israel for their obedience or disobedience to their God. And how those blessings and curses help to establish that white Europeans are indeed the true Israelites of Scripture. Only white Europeans have experienced the full effects of the blessings and the curses over these past 1,800 years, let's say, since Europe began to adopt Christianity and turn to obedience in Christ. Now in that same manner, we shall discuss the blessings of Jacob and Moses upon the 12 tribes of Israel. And then, subsequent to this, in subsequent proofs, we shall explain further how many of these blessings have indeed been fulfilled. Hello, Truthfits. Thank you for being here. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, yeah. So this is uh, one of the fascinating uh, topics that uh, especially British Israel love, right? Because you can really get carried away with this one. Uh, you know, trying to identify all, all the countries and, and all that. And I've been guilty of that as well. But but not, nonetheless, um, it just shows you that um, Israel would have many great, uh, prosperous nations. It wouldn't just be one nation. There would be many. And, and it fits Europe perfectly, right? Uh, Europe was many different countries, nationalities, uh, cultures, and they all were great in their own right. It wasn't just Germany or France or or even just Britain or America. You know, they all had um, great, great countries and they all prospered in their own way. Right. And and this proves that only Europeans could be the Israelites because none of the other races have ever come close uh, to any of this or never even had a basic uh, harmonious civilization, uh, a good country. So, so how can they possibly be the Israelites? They've never been capable of anything, uh, especially like the niggers, the chinks. They've all just had hell holes. So, so logically, only white Europeans can be the Israelites of the Bible, and only they fulfill any of these blessings. Right, Bill? Right. Everything that the other races have done in the last two or three hundred years has been done, has been facilitated by whites. We set up cities in their countries in the colonial period. We injected them with our culture, our manufacturing capability, our agricultural ability. We've transferred a lot of our knowledge to them, directly or indirectly, for them to be able to do the things that they do today to be a part of our world economy a world economy that was built by white nations. So they're reaping the benefits of a lot of this, but 
they have never fulfilled any of these blessings, that these blessings that we see here, to branch out of your original lands or homeland and to become many nations and a company of nations several times. Some of these fulfillments have several, some of these blessings have several manifestations in history. Let me put it that way. So, our race alone, having done that and having ever come to world domination, for instance, the, the examples that I gave last week were, the, were the, um, the British Empire. I could have spoke of other empires. I could have spoke of the formation of the Holy Roman Empire or, or the initial conquests of, of Rome and the, the old empire by the Goths and the Vandals. But the British Empire was the example that I chose because the English through the British Empire had rule of most of the known world for quite a long period of time, for over a hundred years. So this demonstrates that this English empire demonstrates the fact that whites, when they feel that they have a, a commission, can rule the world with very few forces, with very few soldiers. Just as those blessings had said, Five of you shall chase a thousand. And and that was the most obvious fulfillment of that. It wasn't the only fulfillment, but it was the most obvious fulfillment. So these blessings here, what, where the children of Israel would become nations and companies of nations, if we believe our scripture, we have to identify those people. And they can only be identified in white Europeans. The blessings for the 12 tribes in the words of Jacob and the Song of Moses. In Genesis chapter 48, there is a description of Joseph's having visited his father Jacob upon receiving news that he was sick and bringing his two sons with him, Ephraim and Manasseh. This was probably not an ordinary event, as Joseph was still living as an Egyptian, and he was an officer in the Egyptian government. And Jacob was living in the land given to him in Goshen, which was also called Ramses, which, made his, which is made evident in Genesis chapter 47. So Joseph had to travel from wherever his home was in Egypt to Goshen in order to visit his father. And he probably had an entourage with him, right? It wasn't any insignificant event. But it's also at this time that Jacob blesses the, the tribes and happens to die. And Joseph is still there. If we read through the entire narrative in Genesis chapters 47 through 50. So seeing his father. Jacob desires to bless the sons of Joseph and Joseph himself. The outcome of this action is consistent with the fact that Reuben lost his rights as firstborn son when he violated his father's bed. And the privileges of the firstborn son would be distributed among his brothers, 
One entitlement of the firstborn son is a double portion of the inheritance. And with this blessing, that privilege falls to Joseph. The double portion of the inheritance for the firstborn son can be seen in the law, actually, later on in Deuteronomy chapter 21. While Reuben was Jacob's firstborn and the oldest son of Leah, Joseph was the oldest son of Rachel. Apparently, from the Genesis account, all of Leah's sons were born before Joseph as well as those of the handmaidens. But Rachel was the preferred wife. In the ancient pagan world, usually the sons of a man's preferred wife received the inheritance, or at least most of it, and the sons of other wives or concubines received little or nothing. And and if we read the history of Persia and, and the history of some of the other nations, that it becomes evident that a man had a wife and, and then he, because they accepted polygamy, a man could have other wives who weren't designated as the wife. The children of the wife would be the heirs to the estate. The children of any other wives or concubines usually would receive nothing. Yeah, it's hard to imagine now because it's very different. Uh, where, where typically you just have one, you know, one husband, one wife, and uh, everything split equally. But but it was different back then, right? Right. Even in Rome, the emperors would have to adopt as sons the men that they wanted to succeed them to the throne even if they weren't sons. Often they weren't sons. They were, sometimes they were nephews. Augustus Caesar was the nephew of Julius Caesar. I think Tiberius was a nephew of Augustus. I'm not sure, but Tiberius was not his son. And very often the Caesars were not the sons of their fathers. They were simply adopted so that they could inherit from their fathers. So they had to make a special designation so that there would be no, so that hopefully there would be no dispute upon the death of the emperor. Sometimes there was still dispute or somebody was just poisoned. So Jacob blessed Joseph, where we read in Genesis chapter 48 from verse 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, did walk, the God which fed me all my life unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, meaning the two sons, and let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Then he blessed the two sons of Joseph, representing his having received the double portion of the firstborn son. But he also made a reversal of their precedence, putting the younger ahead of the elder. And we read, And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, 
And he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head onto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh, meaning the younger before the elder. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren. That's the double portion of the inheritance for the firstborn son, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow referring to his own experiences in Canaan, which are usually not actually recorded in Scripture. Not too many of the struggles which Jacob had personally in Canaan were reported in Scripture. So here we see that Manasseh is prophesied to become a great people, but that Ephraim would be even greater, and would become a multitude of nations. But before we discuss any of this in detail, we should probably review and discuss the balance of the blessings upon these tribes. All of the 12 tribes were blessed by Jacob before he died, as it is recorded in Genesis chapter 49. So these blessings for Ephraim and Manasseh here are additions. They're in addition to those others where Joseph is mentioned again. Then later, at the end of the life of Moses, he himself blessed the twelve tribes once again. The nature of these blessings describe the fate of the people of Israel, which, when they are compared with later history, it is fully apparent that the blessings came to fruition, even if the fulfillment cannot be identified in detail in every way. I don't know if do, you, do you think to... that the I was just going to say, do you think that there was a difference between um, the nature of the blessings where the first one seemed to be purely on the conduct of, of the sons and also uh, the order where their birth whilst the ones with Moses? Do you think it was just related to that or it was how the tribes conducted themselves on uh, the Exodus and invading uh, the land of Canaan under Joshua that or they were about to right? because Moses died just before that, but but it was based on that, and, and Yahweh gave them a reward based on their conduct. Or do you think it was just purely related on the original 12 patriarchs, the uh, Moses blessings, sorry? Well, well right. All, all of these blessings have to do with the tribes themselves and, and their future. When, for, for instance, when Abraham was blessed, those blessings were expected to be carried through and realized in Isaac and in turn in Jacob. Uh, 
that those blessings were carried through to all of Abraham's seed because God had made those promises to Abraham's seed. When a man was blessed in that manner in the ancient world, that blessing was, was part of his property to be passed on to his descendants, to, to his designated heirs. So we see that it's not written, of course, in that manner, but we see it in, in the substance of the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and Jacob's sons. He basically, in this blessing upon Joseph, in Genesis chapter 48, he basically passed the blessings of Abraham onto Joseph in, in that language. That's the way I read that, that he's passing the blessings of Abraham onto Joseph, especially where he mentioned the names of Abraham and Isaac and said that his name would be on them, meaning Ephraim and Manasseh. So Joseph would become the predominant tribe in Israel. And Joseph was after they after he split from Judah. And we will see that that competition becomes evident between Joseph and Judah. Actually becomes evident in these blessings that that one would be what would necessarily be opposed to the other, or, or that would there would be competition among the sons. It it seems to be part of the an underlying meaning to some of these blessings to me. And perhaps when we go through the blessings that'll become evident. So Joseph inherited the firstborn, but and and the privilege of the firstborn and a double portion, but Jacob inherited I'm sorry, Judah inherited the scepter. So the Privileges which Reuben had as firstborn son, which he forfeited when he defiled his father's bed, they were split up between Jacob's other sons. Joseph only received a double portion. There are other privileges which Reuben would have received that were passed on to other brothers. So we will discuss them as well. So, Bill, does that mean, in theory, right, that if Reuben hadn't have done that, he would have got the double portion, the priesthood, and the ruling scepter? In theory, of course, we it didn't actually happen, right? Right. That's what I believe. That That's evident later on in Scripture. Which I will mention. Which I will mention here, especially when we discuss Levi. Because it's explicit with Levi. It's explicit in the selection of Levi that the oldest son was typically the priest of the family. We should note, before discussing these blessings, that in ancient times, men took their words seriously. They didn't want any of their words to fail, ever. Because then if their words failed, they would understand that they were acting unrighteously or contrary to the will of God. Men took their words seriously, and if their words were just, they believed that God would uphold their words. We read this in the account of the prophet Samuel, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 3. 
And Samuel grew, and Yahweh was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. So when men passed blessings upon their children, they took them seriously. And Jacob, having had the promises of Abraham, and Moses, having been the mediator of the Sinai covenant between Yahweh God and Israel, these men believed that they had the authority to bless the tribes of Israel, and they did. They each did before they died. And that leads me to your question that you asked, and I got sidetracked in my digression, about whether Moses' blessings only have to do with the entrance of the Israelites into the land of Canaan. And yes, he was blessing them for that reason. That is true. If we read Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 27 and 28, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy before thee, and shall say, destroy them. Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. Now, that would have been fulfilled, and it sort of was fulfilled, but it was never really fulfilled, because in Palestine anyway, it will be fulfilled one day. But it was never really fulfilled because the children of Israel failed to destroy many of the Canaanites. They neglected to. They got into the land, they made their way in the land, and they, and, and they took a lot of the territory that they said that they would take, that they were told to take, but they, they failed to destroy all of the Canaanites and others as they were commanded. So they ended up being cursed and suffering a curse because they failed to do as they were commanded. And the Canaanites became pricks in their eyes and thorns in their sides unto this very day. They are still here, pricks in, in, in their eyes and thorns in their sides. So you're right that Moses' blessings were more narrowly intended for the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. But on the other hand, many elements of those blessings could not have been fulfilled in Canaan alone and must have been fulfilled in later history. So we'll see that as we proceed. I'm sorry for the long digression, but I had to answer your question. Yeah, and that shows you that, um, that no matter what you do, you're, you're always going to suffer or be blessed based on your forefathers, right? Like We have to deal with these Canaanites even today because of that incident, that they didn't drive them out forever until Christ returns, right? Well, well right. That's absolutely correct. If, if we look at the blessings to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, most of those blessings were unconditional. But if we look at the Sinai covenant that Yahweh had with Israel, the Sinai covenant was conditional. 
it had conditions. I will do this if you obey me. If you obey me, I will make you this and that and the other thing. I will make you a great nation and a company of nations and your, your kingdom will stand forever if you obey me. That Sinai covenant was conditional on Israel following the law. So when Israel didn't follow the law, the Sinai covenant was dissolved. It's literally, it, it's explicitly dissolved for Israel's disobedience. That's in the words of the prophet Zechariah, where it speaks of beauty and bands and, and Yahweh likening the covenant to a staff that, that was broken because the children of Israel failed to hold up their end to keep the, the things that they had promised to keep. They failed to keep the law. So Yahweh said that he broke that covenant for that purpose. So the old covenant was broke at that time. And that was in the time that the second temple was being built, that the old covenant was broke. And, and that's a direct relation to the old covenant. And I took my staff, even beauty, and might cut and cut it asunder that I might break my covenant, which I had made with all the people, and it was broken in that day. And that's it's explained there. That's on account of their disobedience. They were put out from the land. They were sent into captivity for that purpose. So the only covenant we are under is the new covenant, of course, which is in Christ on the terms that it was stated in Jeremiah chapter 31. And the new covenant is based on, if we read Luke chapter 1, it's based on the promises made with Abraham. It's not based on the old covenant. Yahweh made the new covenant because of the unconditional promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's no other reason he made the new covenant. And a lot of Christians miss that even if Luke states it explicitly in several places, first in the words of Mary and then in the words of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, that Yahweh came to uphold, that Christ came to uphold the promises made to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't come to patch up the old covenant. The old covenant, the Sinai covenant, is dead. So these promises in Genesis chapter 48 and 49 will be kept on account of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but not on account of any, any willingness to obey on the part of the children of Israel to obey the terms of the Old Covenant because it's dead, it's broke. A lot of identity Christians miss that distinction. Seeing these blessings... It may be fitting to briefly recount the order of precedence of Jacob's sons, which is apparent from Genesis chapters 29 and 30, where there is an account of the order of birth of his children. So we will begin with Leah. And we're doing this first because Jacob followed in his blessings the precise order in which his sons were born, but Moses did not. And there are things going on in these blessings that it's important to understand the order. 
So we we begin with Leah. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So Judah's the fourth son, and Levi's the third. And Simeon was completely passed over when Reuben's privileges were distributed among the other sons. Next is Bilhah, Rachel's handmaiden, who bore Dan and Naphtali, and then Zilpah, Leah's handmaiden, who bore Gad and Asher, and then the account returns to Leah, who bore Issachar, Zebulun, and a daughter named Dinah. And finally, after that, there are the sons of Rachel, the children of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. Now, it's remotely possible that Jacob had other daughters, but only Dinah was mentioned because certain events in her life were a factor in the inheritances of the sons. So it's possible Jacob had other daughters, even if they're not ever mentioned or listed. I wouldn't teach that as a doctrine, but I'm saying that possibility is very real because so often in scripture, parties that are not important to a narrative simply aren't mentioned. When Abraham went to Egypt, only Abraham and Sarah are mentioned, but he had had 300 men with him just a short time before that. He must have taken his entire entourage with him, but only the focal characters are ever mentioned in Scripture. And even taking 300 men to him with Egypt, he'd be greatly outnumbered by the forces of Pharaoh. So it would be no different than being virtually alone. Now we shall present, in part, the account of Jacob's blessings to all 12 tribes, from Genesis chapter 49. Evidently, this happened while Joseph was still present in Goshen, and Jacob died after giving these blessings, as Joseph is named in the aftermath events that are recorded in Genesis chapter 50. So we read from chapter 49. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together, and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel, your father. That Now, I should probably make a qualifying remark about that phrase, the last days. That word is the Hebrew word akarif. And when Christians hear it, they automatically think that it happens in the tribulation, the, the coming tribulation which, they, which their denominational churches teach them, where the Antichrist rules, right? They assume that is the last days, and that's absolutely not true. That entire scenario is artificial, We've already been in the tribulation for several thousand years. <laughs> the tribulation is already here. The Antichrist is already here. The Antichrist is already ruling over us. There is no future tribulation except the one that we're in. It could get worse or it could get better. 
depending on whether or not we ever choose to repent as a people and, of course, depending on the overall will of Yahweh our God. So, this idea that we're awaiting a tribulation is a lie. We've been in tribulation for 2,500 years or better. This word last days, this word akarith, really only means future. That's all it means. The future days. Even the apostles had professed to already be in the last days. John said we're already in the last days because there are already many antichrists that had been born. Now, there is a lot of conjecture, as we had stated, as you had stated in um, your introduction, there was a lot of conjecture among Christian identity adherents, and especially the old British Israel variety, which imagines in various ways that each of the 12 tribes may somehow be identified with particular European nations. And I must reject all of that as conjecture. And these prophecies themselves will prove some of those conjectures to be wrong. However, certain of the Christian nations do indeed seem to have fulfilled some of these prophecies. And that we shall discuss later. I mean, we could see clear fulfillments, perhaps, in the blessings to Ephraim and Manasseh and Dan and Judah. But others we really can't see. And they can't be identified with any particular nations. Yeah, yeah, especially with Ephraim and Manasseh, right? That they would be two—they would be two nations a bit uh, greater than the rest. And then when you look at the British Empire in America, um, you know whether you believe America's Manasseh or not, you can at least see an example of two nations that exceeded Europe, and the other race is definitely not right. So surely we are the Israelites. Right. That certainly seems to be the case. I, I would have to agree with that. As for the blessings of Moses upon the 12 tribes, in the opening verse of Deuteronomy chapter 33, we read, And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And then in verses 4 and 5, we see how seriously Moses' words were received where it says, Moses commanded us a law, even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun, when the heads of the people and the tribes of Israel were gathered together. So they're saying Moses' position was like that of a king, even though he wasn't technically a king. Therefore, presenting Jacob's blessings for the twelve tribes here, we shall also present how Moses had blessed them. But Moses did not bless the tribes in the same order, giving them the same precedence as the order of their birth as Jacob had done. So we will keep Jacob's order from Genesis chapter 49 and skip around in, Gen in Deuteronomy chapter 33 for the blessings of Moses. So, continuing with the words of Jacob, Genesis 49. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, 
and the beginning of my strength, the excellence of dignity and the excellency of power, unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed and defiled thou it, he went up to my couch. And the account is that Reuben actually defiled by having sexual intercourse with one of the handmaidens. I don't remember if it was Zilpah or Milcah, or even if the Genesis account tells us, because I know that it's also in the, in the spurious book of Jasher. I think it was Dan and Naphtali's um, mother. Was that um, Joseph's uh, mother's handmaid? Sorry, uh, Rachel's handmaid, I think. Yes, I believe that would be Rachel's handmaiden. I just lost my Bible works. That's okay. I have all my notes in front of me. It crashed. So this is where Reuben is told explicitly that he would be passed over for the privileges of the firstborn son who would expect to inherit a double portion and also the position of family ruler and priest, which is a shadow of the Melchizedek priesthood, which had been a custom in antiquity. Noah being the eighth preacher of righteousness, for instance, it could be determined what that Melchizedek priesthood originally represented. That the family patriarch was ruler of the family is evident in scripture, and the eldest son was also family priest. Once this is realized, the sacrifices of Cain and Abel are better understood, because if Cain was Adam's true eldest son, then Abel should not really have been sacrificing. So Abel was making a statement upon his sacrifice that he was ultimately slain for. In Moses' time, once the law was given at Sinai, Reuben had deserved to die for his offense against his father. We see that in Leviticus chapter 20. And the man that lieth with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. So concerning Reuben, in the blessing of of Reuben by Moses, we actually see an appeal for mercy in the words of Moses. Let Reuben live and not die, and let not his men be few. Now, of course, there was no law against that explicitly in the time when Reuben committed that act, because the law at Sinai had not been given yet. It had not been handed down yet. It was still obviously wrong to do, but without a law, there can't be a condemnation. There can't be a trial for wrongdoing. We see even Cain escaped being executed for the murder of Abel, because there was no law. Paul tells us 
Paul of Tarsus tells us in Romans chapter 5 that there was sin before the law, but sin was not imputed because there was no law. If there's no law from God, then men can't have justice. Men can't have take vengeance for crimes. Now, continuing with Jacob's words after Reuben, next we read, Simeon and Levi, and they are the next born, are brethren, instruments of cruelty, are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret. In other words, there are things which Simeon and Levi had done that Jacob was unaware of, and we will also discuss this later. O my soul, come not thou into their secret. Unto their assembly, mine honor, being not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel, so that neither would have an inheritance of their own. They're being passed over in the inheritance by Jacob. Now, some, and then as we're going to see in a sec, Levi would somehow gain back an inheritance, but Simeon would be passed over, right? Yes, Simeon would be passed over entirely. But Levi receives an inheritance from God, which still fulfills Jacob's words, which is also an important lesson for us. Some Christian identity adherents claim that the descendants of Simeon are the Spanish. I've actually seen that in black and white in books by several Christian identity writers. Others claim Scotland, with or without Ireland. Others put them in Scandinavia. Often, there are obscure biblical verses which are used to justify these interpretations. But they are all grounded in conjecture. All of these associations are wrong because here it says that both Simeon and Levi shall be divided in Jacob and scattered in Israel. So when you see one of those charts of the 12 tribes, and, and there are charts like this extant and being sold by Christian identity, so-called teachers and pastors, and, and these charts try to tell you which European nations are identified or can be identified with the 12 tribes, and you see Simeon with Spain, you should know that that man that made that chart is full of it that he really doesn't know his Bible, because Simeon was to be scattered in Israel. The cities of Simeon in Genesis, I'm sorry, the cities of Simeon in the kingdom, in the old kingdom, were taken into Assyrian captivity in the time of Sennacherib, not long before 700 B.C., along with all of the other survivors of the tribes of Israel, except for a remnant of the people of Judah, Benjamin and Levi, who held out in the siege of Jerusalem, and they were later taken off to Babylon, for the most part. 
that Levi acquired the priesthood in the time of the firstborn, in the place of the firstborn. We see, for example, in Numbers chapter 3, And Yahweh said unto Moses, Number all the firstborn of the males of the children of Israel, from a month old and upward, and take the number of their names. And thou shalt take the Levites for me, I am Yahweh, instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel. And the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstlings among the cattle of the children of Israel. And this indicates that the family priesthood did belong to the firstborn. But from that point in Israel, it would instead belong to the tribe of Levi. So it should have belonged to Reuben, but he forfeited that, along with his position as family ruler, because he would be patriarch on the death of Jacob, and along with his entitlement to a double portion. He should have had the priesthood. It belonged to the firstborn. Yahweh took it from the firstborn of the children of Israel and gave it to Levi, so that Levites would have the position of priests and of teachers of scripture, teachers of the law, and any other things related to the priesthood. It's interesting that the priesthood came before the the ruling scepter, that Levi got that, and then afterwards Judah got the ruling scepter, just the order that Yahweh put it, right? We would probably imagine that the the kingly line would be uh, take precedent, but Yahweh sees it differently, right? Absolutely. Right, the priesthood went to the number three son, where the scepter went to number four. And in the words of Moses, Judah was placed second after Reuben. And then Levi was blessed. But there is no blessing for Simeon in Deuteronomy chapter 33. In spite of the fact that Moses recognized Simeon's inheritance in Israel later in the same book as, I'm sorry, earlier in the same book, as Simeon stood with those tribes given a second, given a portion on Mount Gerizim in order to bless the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 27. So Moses recognized Simeon's presence among the children of Israel. And Simeon, that there were six tribes that uttered curses on Mount Ebal in Deuteronomy chapter 27, and six tribes that uttered the blessings on Mount Gerizim. And Simeon was one of the six tribes which was chosen by Moses to utter the blessings. So Moses recognized Simeon's position in Israel. And there are other proofs of that. But Simeon is never mentioned in these blessings. Simeon was skipped entirely. (laughs) In the account of the events relating to their sister Dinah and what transpired at Shechem, the actions of Simeon and Levi are only very concisely described in Genesis chapter 34. So we do not have all the details. And that is manifest here. 
in Genesis chapter 49, where in the blessings which Jacob had for them, they were not really that they were really not blessed at all. Jacob didn't bless either Simeon or Levi. He just said that he would divide them and scatter them in Israel. That's not really a blessing. That's just a statement of fact of, of what their fate would be. It is not until after the exodus that it is evident that Levi would have the family priesthood. And that reward was made by Yahweh, not by Jacob. Moses not blessing Simeon here. He did bless Levi at length. So perhaps Moses recognized that Yahweh knew something more than Jacob, who didn't want to know their secret, as he himself stated in the blessing. So, Yahweh knew something more than Jacob, as Jacob did not really bless either Simeon or Levi. But Yahweh awarded Levi a priesthood. In other words, by awarding Levi a priesthood, Moses seems to have taken that as an indication that Levi did deserve a blessing, even if Jacob did not give him one. But like Jacob, Simeon was not blessed by Moses and is not even mentioned in this chapter. So, Simeon must have done, and this is my my own conjecture, Simeon must have done something wrong in the incident at Shechem, for which, which was so wrong that his blessing was basically revoked. He wasn't blessed. But Levi, even though Jacob may have thought that Levi was part of what happened or what, what was wrong, Levi was nevertheless blessed later on so I think Moses understood that to be an indication that Levi really did no wrong at Shechem, even though he was blessed, he was not blessed by his father. In spite of that, he did no wrong at Shechem. Possibly Jacob, who didn't want to know their secret, possibly he just didn't have enough information, but judged them both alike, giving neither of them a blessing. Levi was still blessed, so Levi couldn't have done anything wrong. So let's read Moses' blessing for Levi. And of Levi he said, Let thy Thummim and thy Urim be with thy Holy One, whom thou did prove at Massa, and with whom thou did strive at the waters of Meribah. Now, where the rock was struck to bring the children of Israel water, it says, and, and the children of Israel received it because they were demanding, they were making demands upon Yahweh for water and for meat, and they were contending with Yahweh, and this is singled out later on as one of the most important offenses by which the children of Israel transgressed, for which this whole generation would die in the desert and not enter into the land of Canaan. Was this incident at Meribah? But where this happened, it says in Exodus chapter 17, Moses called the name of the place Massah 
and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord. So it's really the same place, Massa and Meribah, even though he is separating them here. It's got to be the same place. So, speaking of Levi, it says, Who said unto his father and to his mother, I have not seen him. Neither did he acknowledge his brethren, nor knew his own children. For they have observed thy word and kept thy covenant. That language is a little difficult. They shall teach Jacob and and. By this we know that the they is to the Levites in general. They shall teach Jacob thy judgments and Israel thy law. They shall put incense before thee and hold burnt sacrifice upon thine altar. Bless Yahweh, his substance, meaning Levi's, and accept the work of his hands. Smite through the loins of them that rise against him and of them that hate him, that they rise not again. So, the Levites fulfilled their role as teachers of the word of God down through the time of the ministry of Christ, no matter how imperfectly and how or even if they may be fulfilling that role today, we can only conjecture. But um, you think they could have also um, been been the Druids? I mean, I know that's uh, perhaps a later topic, but that they did continue until the time of Christ when the Germanic tribes moved around and had priests with them. It, it's evident for a reason that Paul had always gone to synagogues first looking for faithful Judeans because there were actually a lot of non-Judeans in those synagogues, attending those synagogues. They were attracted to the Hebrew scriptures like they would be attracted to any other Greek philosophy. So they were attracted to and chose to follow the synagogues of the Judeans thinking or believing that that was where the truth was. And that's in the Greco-Roman world 2,000 years ago. And we see that wherever Paul traveled in the book of Acts, that these Levites were teaching the word of God in these synagogues, which were distributed throughout the Roman Empire, in all the major cities at least, and that that was attracting Greeks and Romans, who most of them actually were Israelites, descendants of the ancient Israelites, although they were blind. They didn't know it. And that's also probably influenced a lot of the laws that the Greeks and Romans made, right? Incidentally. Well, right. I would say that it did, because that was... That was something which had been going on throughout the entire Hellenistic period. So, did they have a role in the spread of Christianity later on? Yes, they may have. A lot of those synagogue teachers did become Christian, which we also see in the accounts of the book of Acts. But there was always division among them, as we also see in Acts, right, and in Paul's letters. So, a lot of them becoming Christian, yes, they would have taught the scriptures from a Christian perspective. The actual scriptures actually being Christian from the beginning, and Judaism being a heresy. 
The Jews are the ones perpetuating a heresy. For verse 9, verse 9 of this citation from Moses in the blessing of Levi, who said unto his father and to his mother, I have not seen him, neither did he acknowledge his brethren, nor knew his own children, for they have observed thy word and kept thy covenant. There are better interpretations or other interpretations which seem to be better. In the North American Standard Bible, we read, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them. And he did not keep, he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his sons, for they observed thy word and kept thy covenant. At the waters of Meribah, the children of Israel had contended with Yahweh. And here Moses seems to be using that as a comparison and commending Levi for putting God before his own family and choosing to keep the covenant, meaning the tribe of Levi. Perhaps Moses, on the other hand, perhaps Moses had learned information about the events in Shechem that were never told to Jacob, as we see in Jacob's own blessing, that he didn't want to learn their secret. Where in verse 9, he wrote, I did not consider them. And he did not acknowledge his brothers. It is evident that both statements refer to his brothers and also describe some sort of testimony which he had made to his parents in spite of Jacob's having remained angry with them. So while we cannot know why Simeon was excluded from these blessings entirely and would only be scattered in Israel, perhaps Levi had done something good in his role at Shechem, where he and Simeon are described as having avenged the rape of Dinah, their sister, Even if Jacob did not know or acknowledge it, Levi may have done something good. The account explains that they had slaughtered all the men of the place after having convinced them to be circumcised. Then all of their other brothers are recorded as having looted the city. And Jacob was angry with Simeon and Levi, who had answered him, as it is recorded at the end of Genesis chapter 34, by asking, should he deal with our sister as with a harlot? So, something happened at Shechem, which roused Jacob's anger, and which was unrighteous. So Simeon never got a blessing, either by... Jacob or by Moses. But on the other hand, something good must have happened on the part of Levi because Levi in turn did receive a blessing, but it was from Yahweh. And it's Yahweh who can judge us and only Yahweh who could judge us because only Yahweh knows everything. And I believe that this blessing of Levi and the contrast between the blessing which Jacob left Levi and the blessing which Moses left Levi, that 
helps to prove that, that only God can judge us, because only God knows everything. That there must have been something good that Levi did, in spite of Jacob's viewing, Jacob's perception of the events. The scripture doesn't simply doesn't have enough information to inform us of precisely what that something was. Because they were avenging their sister's honor and, and their sister's rape. So Jacob was not and, happy um, with it. We can only conjecture. I'm sorry. If anybody would know, it would be that the sons and then the grandsons of Levi, right? Because he would have had time to recollect the incident and then tell his children what really happened. Whilst maybe um, Jacob, in his rage, didn't want to hear anything more about it. But but you'd expect if Moses did know something more, it'd be the descendants of Levi who would the story would have passed down of what really happened. So right, I'm just and that's, saying it's possible, right, that Moses knew more. Exactly, and Moses was one of those descendants of Levi. Only three generations from Jacob. Three generations after Jacob was Moses. Or three generations after Levi, I'm sorry. But still, that's you're alive when your great-grandfather's still alive very frequently. Three generations is not very far from Jacob. So Moses, I do believe, had, had heard the truth about the incident, but it's never really recorded. Why Jacob, no, specifically why Jacob was mad, was never recorded. You don't think it's anything to do with um, what, what happened like with the golden calf where um, Le Levi was ordered to slaughter all the, you know, the people worship the calf. And uh, later on, we find that one of the princes, a Simeon, is seduced by the Midian wife, uh, brings her in. It's nothing to do with the conduct of Levi and Simeon there. You, you think it's probably just the, the sons that this blessing is based on? I, I don't... The, the Okay, Moses could not have been aware of what was going to happen at Balpeor. It didn't happen yet. It doesn't happen All right, until after these blessings Moses. Were before that, sorry. It doesn't happen until after Moses' death. What you're saying, the part of what you're saying that is interesting is that at Balpeor we see a descendant of Levi slay a descendant of Simeon for race mixing. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because that's exactly uh, a Canaanite rapes uh, Dinah and then later on a Simeonite goes and takes a, a Canaanite as a wife, well, as a Midianite, right? But right. he does the exact thing that was wrong with um, the Canaanite taking his sister, right, a few generations back. It's just weird. Right, that is an interesting correlation. I never put that Simeonite chieftain dying in, in Numbers chapter 25 together with what may have really happened at Shechem. I, I mean, it's hundreds of years later. But if, if that's a type for some anything, it might be a type for that. It does say in, in Scripture that Simeon had one wife that was a Canaanite. So we might see a connection there, that Simeon that that episode with Phineas and, and the chief man of Simeon 
might be some sort of indication as to the reality of why Jacob was angry with Simeon and didn't leave him a blessing. I, I mean, if that woman, Simeon was never condemned for having a Canaanitish wife. There's no condemnation of him in scripture for that. And that could simply describe any Adamic woman who lives in the land of Canaan. And there were many in diverse places. A lot of the cities of the land of Canaan what were actually cosmopolitan cities where people of other nations and races lived as well as Canaanites. So it's difficult to find any details of Simeon's Canaanitish wife, but we are we never see him condemned for that. Where Judah was condemned for having a Canaanite wife. At least he wasn't, if he wasn't condemned during his lifetime, he, he was certainly criticized for it. And it comes out later in, in Malachi chapter 2 that Judah, would mar Judah married the daughter of a strange god and that Yahweh would kill the man that does that. So Judah received mercy probably on account of Jacob, but he had legitimate sons not by his own doing. Or there would be no tribe of Judah. That's another digression. Now moving on to Judah, and once again continuing with Jacob's words, we read, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise, in spite of Judah's having had a Canaanite wife. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched his lion as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and unto him shall be the gathering of the people. Moses' blessing for Judah is brief. And this is the blessing of Judah. He said, Hear Yahweh, the voice of Judah, and bring him unto his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him, and be thou a help to him from his enemies. So here we see that Judah was selected by Jacob to be the family ruler in his place, in Jacob's place. And Judah received that honor in place of Reuben. Now the scepter belongs to Christ, who is of Judah, and who is also the legitimate heir of the throne of David. But kings from Judah ruled over the children of Israel in many places abroad later in history, as well as in the ancient kingdom of Israel. Some of them are most likely ruling over the children of Israel today, although much of the blood of the European nobility seems to have been polluted through intermarriage with the Jews. The key of David certainly has fallen. That is an unrelated prophecy which helps to let us understand what is going on today with the European nobility. So this we should also discuss later after we finish presenting these blessings in, in a future proof is Judah's scepter, because it is real. It can be seen in ancient history in some respects. Yeah, you had the um, Trojan kings... And you had David 
uh, Zion ruling over Israel. And then you had the Romans who ruled basically all the children of Israel except for the Germanic tribes. And then once that fell, you had David's uh, descendants ruling over with the monarchies and nobility, right? So we've always been ruled by Judah, essentially. Yes, we can even show that men like Justinian were, were almost certainly the tribe of Judah. Justinian was a Dardanian from Illyria of the tribe of the Dardanians, and, and they are understood to be the descendants of Darda, the founder of Troy, who's actually the Darda of First Kings chapter 4, verse 31, to whom Solomon is compared in wisdom. And he was of the tribe of Zara, the son of Judah. And that can be put together, and it can be put together fairly. It, it's um, some people might scoff at the connection, but the reasons for the connection are real. So the children of Jacob, in the order of precedence of their birth, Reuben forfeited the double portion, the priesthood, and and family position of family rulership. So the number three son received the priesthood and then the number four son received the position of family rulership. And then Joseph, who was really the number 11 son in the precedence of their birth, he received the double portion because he was the oldest son of Rachel, the preferred wife. Returning once again to Jacob, Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, and he shall be for a haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. So we see Zebulun would be a seafaring tribe and possess harbors, but the land of Zebulun, which Zebulun came to inherit and possess, in the judges and kingdom periods, it was completely landlocked. So this prophecy must be looking forward into the future, as its fulfillment is not apparent in ancient Israel. Zebulun was completely landlocked. It was Naphtali that bordered the Sea of Galilee on the east of Zebulun, and Asher, which bordered bordered the Mediterranean Ocean on the west of Zebulun, and Zebulun was landlocked. Continuing with Jacob, Issachar is a strong ass couching down between two burdens, and he saw that rest was good, and the land that it was pleasant, and bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant unto tribute. Now, while all the tribes of Israel became servants unto tribute, at various times. In addition to the captivities in Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, many European tribes and nations of antiquity were also under tribute at various times. The Huns, who were a Germanic tribe, they had all of the Goths under tribute in, in the 3rd and 4th centuries, and the Goths hated them for it. Vikings were selling Slavs as slaves into England throughout the Middle Ages. 
they were under tribute. And a lot of those Slavs may have been Jepetites, or a lot of them may have been of the Germanic Israelites. It, it's I don't think the lines are drawn that clearly between Slav and Scythian, or Sarmatian and Scythian. I really don't. Do you, do you think it's um the you know the the Zebulon one? Do you think it's a bit crazy to to look at like the biggest seaports and harbors in in Europe? Like say um you know people say it's the Dutch with Rotterdam because the Danube is the the heart the the river the biggest river in Europe, and um you know they had a big seafaring nation. Although although of course France, Spain, and Britain uh, also did. But you think that's all just really conjecture because you can't really there's no other correlating proofs where you can say oh and this and this and this is just kind of speculation really isn't it 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 yeah you know it seems to make sense with the position of holland between england and france and the dutch being a seafaring nation but it is conjecture yeah because it's also interesting that um a lot of the places uh, of the new world were actually discovered by by dutch like new york used to be um uh, was it New Amsterdam originally until yes. it was taken by the British? And I think Australia as well. It was, you know, you have New Zealand, which is uh, named after um, Zealand in uh, in Holland and uh, all places in Australia as well, that they were once a great seafaring nation, but they were overtaken by the British Empire, which you've said, of course, wanted everything to themselves. Yes, there was um, there were a lot of Dutch place names. In New York City, especially in Manhattan, and in Jersey City across the water, where I grew up, there were a lot of surviving Dutch place names. In fact, I, I would say that Dutch was the predominant ethnicity when I was a child in Jersey City. When you looked at the street names of all the streets... A lot of the streets were named after Dutch farms, the farmers that used to live there. When Jersey City was all farms in the 1600s, 1700s, when they made streets, they named streets after the farms. So there was a Van Campton Avenue and a Van Wagenen Avenue and, and Van Nostrand Avenue and all these Van streets and other Dutch names as well the center of the city being called Bergen Square and, and retaining the name Bergen. There were old Dutch reformed churches probably dating to the 1600s in Bergen Square when I was a child. And you could still see the graveyards from the 16 and 1700s next to those churches. So there was a huge Dutch presence in New Jersey and New York early on until the English came and took it over. But you can see that today. That That's another digression. I apologize for that, but that the, the fact that the Dutch did spread themselves out in the 17th century and were a great colonizing and seafaring nation, but they were eclipsed by the English and pushed out of the way, that their, their role in that history of the settlement of North and South America is pretty obscure today. We, we don't really think of the Dutch 
as colonists and settlers here, but they were, and that's the point I'm trying to make, that there were a great number of them who came here and contributed to the general stock of the United States later on. Zebulun and Issachar, being the youngest of the sons of Leah, Moses blessed them together. And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in my going out, and Issachar in thy tents. They shall call the people under the mountain. There shall they offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall suck of the abundance of the seas and of treasures hid in the sand. So as Zebulun was prophesied to be a seafaring people in Jacob's blessing, here also, and Issachar is added to that, as we shall present later on in the next portions of these 100 proofs. These tribes were indeed seafaring tribes almost as soon as they entered the promised land. There was never any seafaring race in antiquity, except for the white race. The indigenous races may have had small boats, dugout canoes, and things like that, which were employed locally, but only whites were truly seafaring to the extent of making lengthy explorations, conveying large amounts of goods by sea, colony building, port building, only whites have done that. And we've seen these blessings that we're going to be, or, or that we were prophesied to be seafaring people, these children of Israel, and that's exactly what they became immediately from entering the land of Canaan. And, and we will see that later. And um, some people have linked that sucking um, the abundance of the sea to... Um you, you know, um, not necessarily just the Dutch, but where people, where, where the Europeans have um, drained swamplands and built land essentially on it and built dikes. And, um, you know, it, all over Europe, that you know, entire marshlands have been converted to farms, uh, which would have been almost impossible, you know, before all the technology. But we've done absolute wonders with that. And, uh, you know, Holland was, uh, um, they actually expanded it. Uh, a whole of a third was actually seawater, and they turned it into land, right? So it's been pretty amazing um, what what we've done in that aspect, right? Plus the oil exploration and, and other harvests that we make from the sea. So yes, that that's that. There's a lot of amazing history there in many ways. Continuing with Jacob once again, Dan shall judge his people. As one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a servant by the way, an adder in the path that bites the horse's heels, so that his rider shall fall backwards. I have waited for thy salvation, O Yahweh. And in that last phrase, in verse 18, the septu in the Septuagint, the translation much better fits the context, where it continues the sentence in verse 17, having waiting for the salvation of the Lord. The New American Standard Bible agrees with that, although it reads the verse as a separate sentence where it says, for thy salvation I wait, O Yahweh, which is actually putting the, those words in the mouth of the tribe of Dan. 
But where it says that Dan shall judge his people, most Bible commentators, and especially those who are identity Christians or British Israel adherents, misinterpret that verse completely from what I've seen. Years ago, I read one such commentator who made the conjectural claim that since most modern judges were Irish, or at least where he lived, that means that the Irish are the tribe of Dan. And in my opinion, that interpretation is childish, in spite of the fact that the tribe of Dan can be connected with the Irish, at least in part. But we will discuss that in subsequent proofs as well. Where Jacob says Dan shall judge his people. While, especially in the ancient world, kings or priests typically judge the people. This means that the tribe of Dan would have more autonomy than the other tribes, that they would tend to go on their own paths. Dan shall judge his people rather than the tribe of Dan being judged by the others. That's how I interpret this. We see the tendency of Dan to break away from the others at a very early time in Palestine where many of them had been dissatisfied with their inheritance among the tribes. And in Judges chapter 18, it is told that many of them moved north and conquered the ancient city of Laish for themselves. As soon as they became established, they set up a pagan idol and a priest for that idol, where, according to that same chapter, they remained, cap they remained until they were taken captive by the Assyrians. Dan has a much more extensive history apart from Israel, which we shall also discuss later in another of our proofs, as Jacob's prophecy here also indicates that Dan would be both an explorer and a pirate. That's how I interpret those words. Yeah, and, um, you, you know, obviously people have linked Dan to to Denmark, but but it does fit all this that um, not not just Denmark, but the whole of Scandinavia was kind of separate and autonomous from the rest of Europe, and that they did um, uh, you know do raids and um, attack all the other nations, right? And um, you you know even the the serpents they left uh, it, you know they'd leave a serpent's path. They've named places after him, and they even had those uh, long serpent boats, like really long and low down. And they could, and a serpent head on the on the front, and they would go down the rivers, and they could attack cities, uh, would completely surprise people because they could go so far up the um, the the rivers. So it would even look like a serpent as they came along, right? So so it's in, it's fascinating that one with Dan. Yes, it is. It is, and there's a lot that could be said for that. And, and a lot of those correlations are very inviting to, identi to identify Dan with those people, which we can do, and, and hopefully we will do later. The blessing of Moses for Dan is brief. And if Danny said, Dan is a lion's whelp, he shall leap from Bashan. But perhaps this is also a prophecy, since after Moses' death... Dan's inheritance was far south of Bashan, but where a portion of Dan had gone to Laish in the north, that would be in the ancient land of Bashan, 
and at least in part, Dan did leap from there, as they were also a seafaring tribe. In Judges chapter 5, in the Song of Deborah, when the Israelites defeated the Canaanites, and those Canaanites were actually in that ancient land of Bashan, Deborah asks, why did Dan remain in ships? Dan didn't take part in the battle. They were off engaged in in shipping, in mercantilism. The land of Bashan, if if we see the description in, in scripture of Bashan and all the places that it encompassed, it is basically the northern, the entire northern part of what later became the tribes that were centered around the Sea of Galilee, Asher, Naphtali, even Gad on the other side of the river, and parts of Manasseh and Ephraim were in the ancient land of Bashan. It was pretty large, the land of Bashan. Mount Hermon was considered in the land of Bashan. And they had the big seaport Joppa in, in their um, old territory, right? So they would have had a great seaport to become uh, a seafaring nation even originally before they left. Yes. Yes, we will definitely speak about Dan at greater length in this perspective. Continuing with Jacob once again. Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at last. Out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He gives goodly words. And while these prophecies are vague, or, or blessings are vague, they do indicate that these tribes shall prosper in Israel. The blessings are also prophecies, is what I should say. Moses' blessings for these three tribes, though not in the same exact order, were also given together and were somewhat more lengthy. And of Gad he said, Blessed be he that enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion and tears the arm with the crown of the head. And he provides the first part for himself, because there, in the portion of the lawgiver, was he seated. And he came with the heads of the people, he executed the justice of Yahweh, and his judgments with Israel. And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor, and full with the blessing of Yahweh, possess thou the west and the south, And of Asher, he said, let Asher be blessed with children. Let him be acceptable to his brethren, and let him dip his foot in oil. Thy shoes shall be iron and brass, and as thy days, so shall thy strength be. And that last part indicates that Asher would be a warlike people. Thy shoes shall be iron and brass. I'm sorry. Do, do you think it's anything to do with the uh, Phoenicians, uh, the way they spread out and where they settled um, Spain and all that? They had uh, all the iron mines, the tin mines, 
uh, you know, that was essentially what really promoted all these colonization. They were looking for resources that they could then trade with the Mediterranean. And a, a lot of the Phoenicians came from Asia, right? Yes, the Phoenicians, I believe that the many of them came from Asher. The greater number of them came from Asher. We, we hardly, when we look at the scriptures, the scriptures are so centered on Judah and Ephraim, the historical books in Kings and Chronicles. And we hardly see any message and any mention of the influence of any of these other tribes, especially these northern tribes. And and. It's clear to me that while there were always some occupants of northern Israel from these tribes, and that those occupants were taken into Assyrian captivity, and there are records throughout scripture of their presence, the tribes didn't have ever have a lot of influence in Judah or Israel, and never really accredited with great accomplishments in those places, I believe that the best and the strongest of them are forever migrating to the West as the Phoenicians, as the Danans, and, and basically settled the entire Mediterranean, even parts of Greece early on, and the Dorians with them who were most likely primarily of Manasseh, because Dor was in Manasseh. And as you said, Joppa and, um, was always a seaport. As for Gad, you know, you know there's been crazy theories, but, but um, it, it's really interesting the way it says um, that blessed is, is be that he that enlargeth Gad, that kind of indicates that another people would enlarge Gad, or in other words, that they would take over lands um, with other Adamites and become a big nation based on that. that that's at least the way I would look at it. Or and, it could um, just be a, a, you, a, um, a phrase worshipping God for enlarging Gad. That's another way to look at it. Oh, okay. Well, that's well, how I would and, read and then, and then the other prophecy that it says a um, a troop will overcome Gad, but Gad will overcome at the last. There was that um, massive Mongol invasion that took uh, a lot of East Europe and all that, and eventually they overcame the Mongols. So um, if you do look at the way the East became, you know, big nation like Russia, but you said, you know, maybe I'm interpreting that wrong, but, but there was that Mongol invasion, the troop that they did overcome eventually. Do you think there's anything there that you could look and maybe think, oh, okay, there might be a lot of gad over in the east parts of Europe? I mean, anything's a possibility. That's a possibility. I, I just don't really like to conjecture it. That There were other instances in history where troops have overcome Germanic tribes or, or European peoples and, and stayed dominant for a certain period of time until they were overthrown. Yeah, like the Huns, for example, as you said. The Huns, that there's instances with the Romans, the Byzantines. Okay. The tribe of Naphtali never possessed the West and the South. 
during the time of the Levitical covenant or Levitical kingdom. So these prophecies, as well as the blessings for Gad, must have a future fulfillment elsewhere. That there's things in, in, in these illustrations, especially by Moses, which we don't always see. There's other things besides Simeon, which we can't always tell what they were from Scripture. Where did Gad sit in the portion of the lawgiver? We don't know. I can't think of one instance where that... So there's something there that we're not that is not explained in Scripture. Naphtali never possessed the West and the South during the time of the Old Kingdom. So these prophecies, as well as the blessings for Gad, must have a, full, a future fulfillment elsewhere. They must. It is also evident elsewhere, in the Septuagint, that Naphtali would be a seafaring people. Where it is said that Naphtali would inherit the walled cities of the Tyrians and Tyre itself, which was actually in the territory of Asher, we're told in the Septuagint that Naphtali would inherit those cities. In addition to the land of their inheritance near the Sea of Galilee in the north of Palestine. But the words are missing in the Masoretic text. They're only found in the Septuagint. But this also warrants further discussion, and we will offer later discussion when we identify these tribes discussing the identity of the Phoenicians. So we will see in, these, in subsequent proofs that these tribes did indeed fulfill these things. Naphtali certainly did possess the West and the South, just not in the way of the Old Testament kingdom. Now to move on again, where Jacob was much more precise and lengthy concerning Joseph. Now he had already blessed Joseph and his sons in chapter 48, and this is a, a more general blessing for all 12 sons. So he blesses Joseph again, and he says, Joseph is a fruitful bow. Even a fruitful bow by a well, whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him, and shot at him, and hated him. But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Even by the God of thy father, who shall help thee, and by the Almighty, who shall bless thee with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. In other words, Jacob saying that he was blessed above even his father's. They shall be on the head of Joseph, and on a crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. So, once again, we see, as I had said in Genesis chapter 48, that the blessings of Abraham, which fell to Jacob, were passed on to Joseph, out of all the twelve sons. 
where it describes Joseph as a fruitful bow by a well, whose branches run over the wall. This seems to agree with the blessings of his sons to become a great nation and a company of nations. That Joseph, having branches running over the walls, would not be contained to a single nation. Word has a parenthetical remark, and it says, From thence is the shepherd the stone of Israel. The subject appears to be Jacob and not Joseph. The clause may be translated, From whence is a shepherd, a stone of Israel, where it is not necessarily a reference to Christ. More importantly, Jacob is passing the blessings he inherited onto Joseph, so Joseph shall be the foremost of the tribes in fulfillment of the blessings to Abraham. Now, of course, that would conflict with the interests of Judah, who had the scepter. So there would be a natural conflict there. And that conflict is evident in in history, even in the Old Kingdom, where they became, where the ten tribes became divided from Judah, and where Ephraim was the chief of those ten tribes, and their capital was in Ephraim for the entire existence of the divided kingdom. Now, the fact that the blessings came onto Joseph does not preclude the other tribes from being nations, but Joseph will be the most significant of them all, according to these blessings. And that is evident in, in, the, in the history of the Old Kingdom. Yeah, that's fascinating that it all comes down to that blessing that no matter what we do, it essentially the blessing determines how great your nation and your people will be, right? And that Joseph was uh, cast out by his other brothers, but ultimately he got the bigger blessing, right? Right. Moses' blessing for Joseph was also lengthy and reflects how Jacob had blessed him. And you're absolutely right, the, the blessings and how it's evident that they played out in, in, in the later scriptures, how those blessings played out in history. It, it's very striking. There's no doubt that these words are true and they are still being fulfilled today. But even with this, so far in all of these blessings, we've seen that all of this can only describe people of, of our Caucasian race. Because I would like to see where the other races were such great seafaring nations throughout early history. I mean, the Arabs, the Arabs were sailing boats in the Mediterranean and, and had navies, but those navies were made up of people that were descended from Hebrews and Greeks. They basically confiscated all of the technology of the Greeks 
as they had taken over Greek lands. That's where they got it from. It didn't come from their own volition. If it had come from within themselves, then they would still be great seafaring nations later in history. And when once their navies were defeated by the Europeans, especially by the by the people of Naples, who fought with them for a long time in the Mediterranean, once their navies were defeated, they never came back from that. Where are their navies today? Where are the great Arab navies of today? Everything they do is dependent on their oil money and buying all of their technology from Europe. Yeah, and you can see the Ottoman Empire. What, what happened with that? Uh, it was just because Jews were uh, the, you know, using the beast system to fund them and raise armies to invade Europe. But once they changed tactic and instead started building big banks, and, uh, you know, in Europe, they just gave up on the Ottoman Empire and it just collapsed immediately. Like, it was just a joke, right, by, by like the 19th century. Right, it degenerated. Stopped advancing and degenerated completely. It never really advanced anyway. I, I don't see any real advances in the Ottoman Empire from the time that they gained Constantinople, the fall of Constantinople in 1450. There were really no advances in among the Ottomans again in history until their, their more recent benefits from the West where, where they've received Western technology. Where the whole yeah, world has Western they technology. They had an endless um, supply of um, Arabs, essentially hundreds of millions that they could just throw at Europe, right? Right. Even that's even that is has been the result of Western technology. They would never have the technology to feed all their people if it weren't for the West. Only in Western nations have we developed tractors and automobiles and gas combustion engines or alcohol engines or any of that sort. None of those inventions have ever been developed in non-white nations. Today, they're all made in China because we've sent all of our manufacturing plants to China to make them. And basically, that's true. Same thing with computers. That's another digression. I'm sorry. We should get on with this. Moses' blessing for Joseph was also lengthy and reflects how Jacob had blessed him. Reflects how Jacob had blessed Joseph. Where we read, and of Joseph he said, Blessed be Yahweh of his land, for the precious things of heaven, for the dew. Blessed of Yahweh be his land. I'm sorry, I can't read. For the precious things of heaven, for the dew, and for the deep that couches beneath. And for the precious fruits brought forth by the sun. And for the precious things put forth by the moon. And for the chief things of the ancient mountains. And for the precious things of the lasting hills. And for the precious things of the earth and the fullness thereof. And for the goodwill of him that dwelt in the bush. That's a reference to God and the burning bush. Let the blessing come upon the head of Joseph 
and upon the top of the head of him that was separated from his children, from his brethren. His glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. And unicorns aren't unicorns. That's a poor translation. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. And they are the tens, ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. So, the horns of Joseph shall push his people to the ends of the earth. And, and we'll discuss that, I'm sure, at greater length later on in the series when we get to discuss these nations of Ephraim and Manasseh and possibly identify them in history. But the horns of Joseph certainly did push his people to the ends of the earth at a very early time with the ancient maritime adventures of the children of Israel and the later migrations after the captivities. Finishing with Jacob's blessing of the tribes. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall devoid the spoil. The word raven means to catch and to tear in pieces in reference to prey. Now to read Moses' blessing of Benjamin. And of Benjamin he said, The beloved of Yahweh shall dwell in safety by him, and Yahweh shall cover him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. And this may also be a prophecy, as Jerusalem was actually in the territory which was inherited by Benjamin, although it was on the border of Judah. So Jerusalem, although it was the capital city of Judah, it was in the land of Benjamin. So where it says, the beloved of Yahweh shall dwell in safety by him. And we see Jerusalem. I believe that that is prophetic in that sense. Because the temple was technically in the land of Benjamin. Benjamin was located between Ephraim and Judah. The chiefest of the 12 tribes may be allegorized in the shoulders here. Obviously, there may be more to prophecy, to the prophecy than that, but we can imagine this to have a fulfillment, a partial fulfillment at least, in Palestine. But Jacob's blessing seems to have been fulfilled in later history. Do you think it might be a double prophecy as well, where Christ dwelt amongst the Benjamites? Like, the, also the beloved of the Lord, he came amongst them, his apostles, and then he went into uh, Judah to spread the, the gospel, essentially. Yes, that's a very good observation as well, because it seems that at least most of the inhabitants of Galilee that were Israel were from the tribe of Benjamin. It's obvious that at least most of the apostles were from Benjamin, as they were all related, Peter and John and Andrew, that they were all related to each other and came from the same general area. So he used the least of all the tribes to change the whole world, right? 
Right. Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So it's evident. It's not explicit, but it's evident in Scripture that most of the apostles were from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I think Matthew's an exception. And Matthew has a second name. The second name is Levi. But I think Matthew's an exception. Being a publican and the father's vocation often or usually passed down to the eldest son, it seems to me that Matthew may have been a Levite, where the, most of the other apostles were Benjamin. That's my opinion. I can't prove it. But Matthew was a publican who was encountered by Christ. So he became one of the twelve, but he became a, one of the twelve later on, this might be as late as the second year in the ministry of Christ when this occurred. In fact, the, the account of Matthew becoming a disciple isn't mentioned until Matthew chapter 9 in Matthew's gospel. So he was only an eyewitness of the things which happened from that time. Well, he must have gotten the rest of his gospel, the early chapters of his gospel must have come from the other witnesses. But in Luke, Matthew was called Levi. And to me, that's, that, that's another clue that Matthew was, and that's in Luke chapter 5, that Matthew was actually a Levite, whose name may have been Matthew Levi. He probably had both names, which is why Luke calls him Levi. Well, that sums up or summarizes these blessings by both Moses and Jacob. And in subsequent proofs, we're going to recall at least many of these blessings in relation to the Phoenicians and, and the tribe of Dan abroad and how these blessings, the scepter of Judah, and how these blessings may have been fulfilled in history. And, and we can repeat a lot of the conjectures, but I would like to start out with what we can establish from old books. Yeah. So, sorry, there was one more I just I, I meant to mention, but... Um, it, it's just interesting. I know this one might be silly that people say, um, you know, Reuben is France. But but there is uh, something interesting that um, when, when you look, when all the Germanic tribes settled, that immediately, um, well, not immediately, but fairly quickly, Charlemagne rose and essentially ruled all of Europe. And uh, he put all his descendants as the kings. Uh, he divided it up. He even was the Holy Roman Empire. And then after that, it all collapsed and um, you know, other kings took their kingdoms and uh, Germany actually became the Holy Roman Empire. When you look at the prophecy of Reuben, you look at that and you think, well, that's just, just a funny coincidence, right? And, and it probably is, but it's just interesting, right? Yes, I would say things like that are interesting. And hopefully one day we will know the truth of them. Hopefully one day we'll, we'll really have a history lesson and learn the truth of these things. I don't know if we could do that in this life. Yeah, we'll find out where, who was who and what tribe and, you know, in heaven we'll find out all of that, right? 
Well, I pray that maybe these questions will become meaningless if we get to that point. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if we exactly. personally get to that point, these questions might become meaningless. But I think it would be fascinating to see more precisely how these prophecies were fulfilled in history. Because if some of them were fulfilled and we could see it plainly, then we should have an assurance right there that they were all fulfilled because this is the word of God. Yeah, he didn't just forget about a prophecy. Or... Right. So even if we can't always see precisely how they were fulfilled, we can see how this begins to unfold in early history and in our scriptures. We certainly can see that. And knowing the beginnings of them we should have confidence in the end because the word of God will not fail and God will not be mocked. If we could show in some ways how these things did become true, then we, we should be certain about the end of these things and confident that they're all true. Okay, that's my opinion on the blessings to the patriarchs. Yeah, that, that was great, Bill. Thanks. Thanks, Hermie. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thank you. Praise Yahweh, and good night. Thank you.